people don't have to confront the realities of domestic violence or do any like preventative caring work if we just make people we've decided are social ills go away. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Free Alabama Movement has put out a call for drug addiction counselors. If you have experience in this area, you can reach out via the FAM Facebook page or write to us. Here's their call. As many of you know, the Alabama Department of Corrections is beset by an overflow of drugs and drug addictions. There are few, if any, drug addiction services or counselors available to respond to this epidemic. Moreover, the ADOC is apathetic to the issue. Therefore, FAM is reaching out to our network of supporters, family members, etc. to assist FAM in identifying professionals who are willing to lend their expertise to FAM so we can address this problem. Please share this message and inbox us with contact information and any ideas you may have to address this problem. Clearly, we will have to use innovative and outside-of-the-box ideas to reach those in need of assistance because the ADOC is guilty of promoting the influx of drugs and capitalizing off the drug crisis. We anticipate bringing professionals into the prisons via our blog talk radio platform, workshops for family members, pamphlets, and any other ideas that we can use. Please help. Sincerely, Free Alabama Movement. Four asylum seekers have been on a hunger strike for over 24 days at ICE's El Paso Service Processing Center. Those men initiated the action after enduring prolonged detention, lack of due process, and discrimination. The El Paso Center is known for its mistreatment of detainees. Earlier this year, some detainees engaged in a prolonged hunger strike to protest their unjust detention and inhumane treatment. Those asylum seekers were force-fed and eventually deported to the country, India, from which they were seeking asylum. Recently, prison officials at the El Paso facility issued an ultimatum to the hunger strikers to drink a beverage, or they would undergo involuntary hydration, or IVs. The men refused to drink it, and the officials showed them court orders for IVs. Rather than release those men, ICE seeks to torture asylum seekers in their custody through the use of involuntary medical procedures like IVs and forced feeding. A hunger strike broke out in Scotland Correctional Institution in Laurenburg, North Carolina, last Wednesday. The following is a solidarity statement and a request for a call-in issued by outside supporters with the Atlanta Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. They write, Grievances were filed and notaries requested for legal actions at the conditions of confinement at this razor wire plantation are being ignored consistently. Many of these grievances have revolved around Scotland denying those held captive of their recreation time. In response, Scotland's staff claim that recreation is cancelled. Despite Chapter C, Section .1206B of the NCDOC Policy and Procedures, stating that those on restrictive housing shall be allowed to wreck outside of the cell five days out of the week for one hour a day. 
Scotland is in violation and causing severe harm to all of those who are forced to be confined to a small cell 24-7. Furthermore, Scotland's so-called medical staff conduct what is called a seg check at 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. every night while everyone is asleep. This seg check involves banging on everyone's window, disrupting their sleep, and startling them. You can call 910-844-3078 and ask to speak to Captain Henderson and Superintendent Katie Poole. Again, that's 910-844-3078. They ask that you record calls if possible, leave long messages on their voicemails, call multiple times, and disrupt their operations. Remember that denial and obstruction are standard operating procedures for them. Report any and all info received to atlantaiwalk at protonmail.com. You can find a suggested call-in script on our website. This week, we hear from two people, Faith, who talks to us about the practice of inmate lending, and Jason Renard Walker, who speaks to retaliation he's facing on the inside. We spoke with Faith at the Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence recently, and she told us about the practice of inmate lending, where prisons bid for labor in the form of prisoners from other facilities. This practice often leads to prisoners being shipped to facilities to work in locations very far from their families. After Faith, we have a statement that Jason Renard Walker, who called in from the All Red Unit in Iowa City, Texas. Again, we apologize for the sound quality on this one. It's often hard when prisoners call us from the inside, but we feel like Jason's message is important and we'd like to share it. We'll provide a transcript of the essay he's reading on our website soon. In his message, he talks about the retaliation and harassment along with other inhumane conditions and treatment he's been experiencing. Now, here's Faith. I'm Faith Fickner, and I work with one other person, Charles Peel, trying to address states that contract to have their inmates held really far away, um, particularly with for-profit prisons, because we feel very strongly that it's a tactic to isolate people. Yeah, moving people thousands of miles away from their loved ones makes any hope of rehabilitation more delusional. We all know that prisons aren't places of rehabilitation in the first place, but especially separating somebody from anyone who might visit them or might ground them in the community that they're ideally to return to uh, makes that all the more impossible for the people inside. And also it, you know, economically and emotionally deprives the families they leave behind. There's so much racket in profiting off of not just literally the contracts holding people, but so like the, the Vermonters, there's 215 of these guys in Mississippi and their brothers and kids and wives and moms are paying really exorbitant rates to supply them with basic necessities that they were deprived, that they are deprived of every time they are, you know, forcibly and arbitrarily relocated. And that's pulling resources out of communities that are already being damaged and ripped apart into like a for-profit carceral system really far away. And that doesn't make any sense. So we go down to the Delta where there's a giant monstrous prison in the middle of nowhere in a town where that's the only real employer, though it pays COs nine bucks an hour. And so guys from many states are held there. And also uh, there's a ICE detention center with a little more than 2,000 um immigrant detainees held in the Delta, again, you know, truly, truly isolated from the networks of people that care about them and care where they are. Uh, There are a lot of reports out of this uh, Tutwiler or the Tallahatchie County Correctional Facility of uh, ICE detainees are supposed to have the right to 
say, okay, I'll go back. You know, if you're being held in an immigrant immigration detention center, legally, it should be the case that if you are fed up with the conditions, which we should improve the conditions dramatically and stop detaining immigrants, but you should get to throw in the towel and leave, right? But um, making it a for-profit contract totally eliminates that incentive. So nobody is being given that opportunity in Tallahatchie County and presumably in other core civic and geo group facilities around the country. So yeah, we go down there to talk to the guys held there about what that mean, especially that transfer, that distance means for them and their families. Some of the guys from the Northeast who are there were in Camp Hill in Pennsylvania before and relative to Camp Hill, uh, Northern Mississippi is a resort island paradise um, because Camp Hill is extraordinarily violent and an atrocious hellhole. But yeah, we talked to them about the differences between that facility and uh, Pennsylvania and Kentucky and Michigan, uh, where a lot of them have been moved back and forth from or amongst uh, and being home near their families and how that's affecting their families. And then while we're you know, in, in Vermont um, trying to address the hole that that's leaving in the lives of families, uh, which is a lot of like metaphorical gutter cleaning out, but really it's like a lot of people want us to visit their moms and take pictures of their family, which is like such a unselfish, basic human ask to just be like the state, because I'm a drug addict, the state moved me for profit thousands of miles away from my family and I can't see them or hear from them. Can you just go see my mom and send me a recent picture of her is like, that's, that's like a extremely humble and humbling ask. That's most of what we get. But also some of the guys are like, want pressure on the, the individual state that they're from to stop contracting with CoreCivic, to stop shipping people out of state. And so we, we are, are working hard on that, but that's obviously has a lot of like electoral politic elements and this, you know, people who are pretending to be humane or maybe are well-meaning but short-sighted and ignorant, let alone like racist, uh, say that the facilities back in the Northeast are so dilapidated, are falling apart and, and very expensive and so the tax base can't support, you know, holding this many inmates in like Vermont or, or Maine, also uh, Wisconsin and Hawaii and a couple other states uh, do this practice. But so they'll say we can't afford to house them here humanely. So for their benefit, we're going to move them to a for-profit prison in some other state. Or, you know, we can contract with state-operated prisons in other states, but that has a, a tremendously brutal history of a, a lot of completely unnecessary deaths have been the result of, of contracting, especially with the state of Pennsylvania. Um, but yeah, that's what we talked to them about. CoreCivic is a for-profit prison corporation that operates a couple hundred uh, for-profit 
facilities around the country, um, both inmate detention and immigrant detention, oftentimes uh, in the same facility. That's the case in the Delta. Um, so mostly it's interstate contracting where some your state or your county will hand over the reins for incarcerating people to CoreCivic or GEO Group. Um, but the, the guys that I am the most interested in right now are contracted away to a for-profit prison really far from them because I'm interested in this idea that kind of hiding our pain or tucking people away that this like out of sight, out of mind, I, it, people don't have to confront the realities of domestic violence or do any like preventative caring work if we just make people we've decided are social ills go away. But yeah, CoreCivic contracts with most of our states uh, to to do that, and and they and they are a, a really active and successful lobby. They uh, push very hard and very successfully to further expand the prison industrial complex and to further contract with state and county governments, which also, of course, leads to this incentive to well like that girl sarah was talking about when counties take development grants that are pitched to them when rural counties take development grants that are pitched to them as a way to bring jobs um to build prisons so a, a small town or area will build a prison with the hope that it will keep some young people working there um but then to keep that prison afloat they need to keep a certain number of people incarcerated in it that circularly motivates the prosecutors in that area to incarcerate more people unnecessarily to keep the economy of their place afloat which is such a perverse motive it obviously you know in the end is just draining resources as well as like energy and young people and particularly dads out of these areas. So a lot of guys, different states have different assurances on what kind of medical treatment you will have access to if you're incarcerated there. Um, and what their assurances are aren't necessarily what you get anyway. But so a lot of guys, you know, were, were clean in one place because they had access to some resource, be it a support group within the prison or an NA group or therapy, or even you know just being close to their family, but then being transferred um, often to places where COs are bringing dope inside and, they, and guys don't have access to that has led a lot of people I care about to relapse inside, even if they had been clean for a very long time, or to become drug addicts inside. Um, from drugs brought inside for a side hustle, but like we talked about in that last group, it's a lot of these COs are making $9 an hour and it's their only job prospect. And so they perceive it as a necessity to be making some additional income, getting more people hooked or supplying people for relapse. Um, and if you are a recovering addict, 
incarcerated and you're dopamine deprived. You can't exercise, you don't get sunlight, you don't have caring physical human touch. Having somebody offer you heroin, it's like nobody could say no to that. I guess if, you know, if you are saying no to that, right on, but like it's, it's an unrealistic and totally inhumane ask. So we feel pretty passionately about access to addiction fighting resources inside. And also, you know, I think the, the structure of accountability for prison personnel, employees who are bringing drugs inside should be a lot harsher. Inmate lending is when one state says we don't have the beds, we can't keep these people in our jails or prisons for one reason or another. Often they use a humanitarian, a pseudo-humanitarian argument to say the conditions are too poor. Um, sometimes it's simply like an overcrowding issue, but to contract with a different state. And so the state will say we have 811 male inmates at, you know, blah, blah, blah levels. And then corporations and other states will bid on housing those inmates, often looking to use those inmates for industrial work. So when one state puts out that they're going to do this practice, that they're going to need to house their inmates or quote unquote need, uh, that they're going to lend their slaves away, uh, other states and corporations will bid on what those states and corporations would charge the lending state to house those guys. And it's typically much less than the state they're coming from is quote unquote spending on quote unquote caring for them. So like with the Vermonters, we got the, you know, the lowest bid is gonna, you know, be from Camp Hill, is gonna be from a hellhole. And I think they say the average cost of a bed per year in Tutwiler is $24,000 a year, whereas for the Vermont DOC, it's $60,000 a year. So that's an argument that the state will use to ship people away. But then there are different kinds of industrial work done by different state prisons. So guys are lent away to go do some other kind of labor in some other state. And now we have a statement from Jason Bernard Walker, who recorded this and sent it into us. Here he is. My name is Jason Bernard Walker. I'm the Minister of Labor for the Black Panther Party Prison Chapter. And this is the article I tried to send out to the already unit mailroom on July 15th. But I just learned today, July 30th, that it was denied because they claimed that I attempted to send a friend, Noel Leon, cash to purchase items, but they didn't what the was. When I challenged this, the bedroom officer, which was a male, he ripped it up and threw the uh, complication form away, but gave the letter. And in the letter, it was small, a short note, and it was an article I'm about to read. The title of the article is Retaliation 101. Requesting access to rest areas that already use the big no no. Okay, here we go. Andre John Boyan, B O Y E N, number 1750184, is 
already unit prisoner who recently had his share of retaliatory methods imposed by staff towards prisoners from East Mississippi. Since 2011, Boeing has been prescribed medications that, in effect, make consistent to the hot weather. This daily medication intake consists of 300 milligram capsule Effexor for depression, 200 milligrams of Tegretol for mood swings, and 100 milligrams of Profitazine for difficulty sleeping. First, medical staff randomly revoked his bottle bump pass that allowed him to be permanently assigned at bottom bump for ACL and fracture tibia surgery. And here's a quote from Boyan. Someone has been running a scam, snatching our bottom bump passes, and forcing us to see a provider and basically pay $100 to get our bottom bump back. Boyan suggests using others who had it happen to them, too, as backup to this assertion. Then, on July 12, 2019, Boyan was removed from the building designed to accommodate Eastern City prisoners, seven building that does not. I'm at, currently at seven building. As he arrived at seven building with guards, his face and neck were dripped in and dripping red chemical agents that contained the that contaminated the entire pod, suggesting he just been gassed in the face at close range. Boyan was denied the chance to decontaminate or shower. Here's another quote from Boyan. I was forced to leave the AC pod and move back out the population in the heat, he said, prompting his refusal to walk. Here's another quote from Boyan. An ICS was initiated and I was held on the fence handcuffed, posing no threat at all when Lieutenant Reyes asked me if I would comply. So I looked at him and asked, comply with what? At this point, Boyan was blasted in the face with a riot-sized can of gas, dragged to the infirmary for no medical reasons, then thrown in a two-man cell that was preoccupied with prisons in front of all cameras, contaminating that cell and their property as well. This is not a unique situation at all. The face gas of handcuffed prisoners is normal and the recommended way to deal with righteous protests and civil rights violations. It goes on because the victim's brother tried to expose it or again. And this is another section back to the basics. TDPJ created a statewide policy called Rest Restraining Education. It is supposed to alert staff to how prisoners can access respite areas. In part, it says, one, inmates are allowed to access respite 24-7. Two, inmates do not need to be sick, injured, or feeling bad to access respite. Rather, they may do so to cool down whenever they wish. Three, to access respite, inmates can make the request to any correctional officer. Or, if there are problems, ask to talk to a ranking correctional officer. But what are prisoners supposed to do when ranking staff prep officers on how to deny respite access? Ranking staff like Sergeant Michael S. Mason, Sergeant Barbara L. Atterbury, and Sergeant Nicole, Nikki Nicole R. Felder, staff who disregards respite policies tired out of ill will and laziness. Within the chain of command, someone has drawn a policy that allows only one respite area to accommodate over 3,000 prisoners, with access being given to 20 a day. Those who don't make the cut have to try again the next day. Out of the 20 that go to one building, which is the administration building, for respite, I've seen all make turnarounds to avoid both disciplinary cases, which are dished out to cheer prisoners from using respite. Michael J. Waddell, W-A-D-D-E-L-L, is a racist guard who works for one building death. He is the main one that I've seen that retaliates and source prisoners into giving up their respite pass to avoid Trump's disciplinary report. Here's a, here's a quote. The one building death officer Waddell tried black belly hard respite access by intimidating and threatening with falsified cases. Prisoner Jalen Fisher wrote in an affidavit concerning our attempt to ask respite. Here's another quote from Fisher. Waddell said if we would deny respite that he wouldn't write us up, Fisher went on to say. Throughout the prison, a resident random memorandum is posted for all to see and read. If we hear Jalen being denied by pointing to the rest of the memo, 
Atterbury goes and he crosses out mode. Here's another quote. Is that a threat? Are you refusing housing? You gonna do what to me? Atterbury says while clutching the riot, you can't have gas ready to pull the trigger. The prisoner has no choice but to walk away frustrated. Felder keeps a no sign on the desk, which is her umbrella asking any questions, including wrestling. She just swimming across that too. On July 10th, 2019, I received a false case from Waddell. In it, he lied saying that I refused to go to the house and cross out case. During the event, I was with Fisher. Our only reason for being in one building was to ask the respite. We were allowed to go by the sergeant and give him a pass. At this time, it was 100 degrees indoors and around 105 degrees outdoors. Within seconds of our arrival, Waddell threatened to harass us. He gave several bogus reasons why we would, he would write us up. An example, my collar was zipped up. Fisher was out of place, which was even too close to the wash. I had a towel around my neck. Fisher hair was cut wrong, etc. But if we refused respite, he wouldn't write any cases. I pointed out his distorted manner and requested his name and how to spell it. Here's a quote from Waddell. Since you write me up, I'm writing you up too, he said. And then, not only was we not arrested, but I received a false case for trying to access it according to their own policy. Anyone interested in the extent of staff will go can read all my other piece on this matter without me having to recite it here. On July 24, 2017, Deputy Director Robert Harrison, E-R-I-S-N, S-O-N, authorized the TDCJ statewide memo to all TDCJ wardens and regional directors, ordering all wardens to make air conditioning respite areas available. This included posting notices explaining where these areas are located and allowing staff and prisoners to use them as needed. But, like at the all red unit, staff unit prisoners feel straight just asking for a place to beat, beat the heat. Here's a uh, quote from a, a, uh, a prisoner at the uh, PAC unit. I've only ever tried to use an area listed on TDCJ notice once to offenders one, and that was a bad experience, said Fred Wallace, a plaintiff in the, uh, uh, the PAC unit of law school, and that declaration he wrote to the court. The all year red unit administration are already prepared to counter any heat-related wrongful death claims. Since they do have a heat memo everywhere, they'll simply recite the status specifics. They claim prisoners are aware that they can access respite 24 7 but are choosing not to. The state of Texas requires county jails to keep indoor temperatures between 65 degrees and 85 degrees which is in Title 37, Texas Administrative Code 259.160. This is because when it's hot, in the high 90s outside, it can easily get up to 110 inside places that lack adequate air conditioning. Since 1998, at least 23 prisoners have died from heat-related illnesses in the state. 75 out of the 104 state prisons in Texas lack air conditioning, and this issue may never get addressed by prison officials alone. CDCJ claims it will cost nearly $1.2 billion to properly install air conditioning in what all 104 state prisons. The most prisoner heat related death being that of former micro unit prisoner, 53 year, 54 year old Robert Earl Robinson, who died on July 19th of last year. With 2011 and 2012 being a year that 14 of the 23 prisoners died of environmental hypothermia, which is commonly known as heat stroke. The acknowledgement of this alone isn't compelling. CDCJ officials. Is it, the, the, the acknowledgement of this alone is to tell CDJ officials taking at least a small measure to ensure the safety of prisoners during the long summer. One step will be the creation of an independent oversight committee that can monitor the actual allowance of prisoners getting access to restaurants for request and without the threats of form and false write-up. This committee will also be composed of concerned citizens that could investigate heat-related denied respite issues and the whole staff that are in violation responsible. So then, readers file complaints against the warrants office and they're sub by contacting the 
office in the environmental protection agency. You got to struggle, you got to win all power to people. And I also must say that since Ian is writing this report, they're not complying with their little heat directive at all because every hour on the hour, they're supposed to come check me and other prisoners down the list. See if we need rested areas, see if we need uh, ice water, or see if we need cold showers. They're not doing this. And just last night, between 5 p.m. and about 3 p.m., I asked several officers, and they were all asking if I can come out to the cell and get cold water. If not cold water, take a shower. And I was all denied, no. And the reason they do that is because they're lazy. So if people were to check cameras, they would see that not only do they not give us uh, access to respite at all, but they're not even doing their security check or they're not doing their uh, heat restriction check, which is in compliance of a city state lawsuit. You can find more information on Jason's essays and how to be in touch with him on our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.